most of us find the healthcare system totally confusing. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. In Getting Better Healthcare, Dr. Steve Feldman and his expert guests walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take charge of our own and our family's healthcare and what needs to be done for a healthier medical system. It's time to find out what to do. Now, here's Steve. Hi, welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. This is the healthcare program that doesn't just discuss particular diseases and their diagnosis and treatment. This show is on the greater aspects of the healthcare system, the people who were involved, how the parts of the healthcare system come together, how you can work through that system to getting better healthcare, and what you need to start thinking about in order to change that system to make it the best healthcare system it can be. On today's program, we have a special guest, Dr. William Roth. Bill has spent considerable time developing an approach to addressing the healthcare system as a whole, to creating a plan for a universal healthcare system. He's just completed his book, Comprehensive Healthcare for the United States, an Idealized Model. This book brings together contributions from physicians, nurses, administrators, and others. People involved in the healthcare system, not just in the United States, but from around the globe, to critically examine our healthcare system and to come up with a comprehensive plan that, that, that would improve our healthcare system. Now, Bill has quite a background for this. Um, he uh, teaches introduction to management theory at undergraduate and graduate level. He's um, done courses on healthcare policy, on ethics, and on organizational behavior and quality improvement, uh, and strategic planning as well, critical issues for our healthcare systems. Uh, his master's degree is from the University of Pennsylvania, and he received a PhD from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, specializing in the systems approach to organizational development. What I really like about Bill's work is that he's starts from a central idea that healthcare is a right and not a privilege, and then he tries to develop the ideal healthcare system from that basic foundation. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hey, thank you. Let's start off with the key issues in the cost of healthcare. Tell us what is good about the current system, and then what's bad that needs to be fixed. <laughs> uh, well, there. A lot of good things, but uh, there are a lot of bad things, too, that definitely need to be fixed. Uh, the good things are the people who get health care in this country uh, get very, very good health care. Uh, the people, you know, who qualify for it. Um, also, the education system is good. It, we have some very fine physicians and people in all areas. I've taught physicians and physicians' assistants and nurses and um social workers, I've taught people, all the people that run it, and, and a lot of administrators, and they're very, very well trained. The bad things are the things that need to be fixed are quite simply uh, the cost. We pay twice as much per capita as any other country in the world for health care, which is absurd. Um, the way that we have a tremendous competitive ethic in the health care industry as well as all of our other industries 
It's fine in other industries, but in healthcare, I don't think it works quite as well because there's an awful lot of duplication. I mean, how many, how many, uh, um, I don't know, pieces of very expensive equipment do we need in one community? In European countries, especially those, most of those were the ones that we used as examples and we researched in order to develop our ideas of what the best approaches were. In most European countries, hospitals and clinics share technology. They focus on one area of treatment, and then they send people between these, these different institutions because it's not a competitive system. So in the United States, we're competing for patients, and in order to compete, uh, we everybody has to have an x-ray machine, and everybody has to have, uh, I don't know, a machine for looking at brains and things like that, and that just doesn't work too well. It dries up the cost. Another major problem, of course, is that the insurance company is a major player in the United States. I've read, and through our research, we found out that 30% of every healthcare dollar spent in this country goes for administrative costs to the insurance companies, whereas in other countries that figure is about 5%, 5% or frequently less, and that's a tremendous expense that's unnecessary. The other thing, of course, another thing that's that another weakness of our system is that not everybody gets the same quality of care. In fact, some people don't even get care. The doctors do have the right to turn people down, and I've seen it myself personally, uh, people who don't have insurance and who can't pay what the doctors want or the physicians or whoever is treating them. So that's another problem that we have that can be straightened out quite simply, but we have to change our attitude about health care. Um, I think in our country, health care is still looked on by many as a privilege, and that's a mistake. We need to make it a right, a universal right, as it is in every other developed country in the world. I got the sense, Bill, um, from reading your book, that that's really at the core of your book, that the fundamental issue is that you feel health care is a right and not a privilege. I think that a majority of the population in this country feels that it should be a right and not a privilege. And it's not altruism not you know, a goody-goody attitude. It's that the country that's going to dominate in the world in the future, the countries that are going to dominate, are the countries that make the best use of their potential, their citizens' potential. And certain things are necessary to the development of that potential, the realization of that potential. And one of the things is adequate health care. Uh, so if our people are healthy, they're going to be better performers, Industry has found this. I've been an industrial consultant for 20 years, and one of the major problems is people missing work or people being sick. Uh, that's, that can be taken care of if we have an appropriate health care system in place that believes that health care is a right and that focuses on prevention. That's another problem with our system at this point. It doesn't focus on prevention. It focuses on treatment, and that's a real mistake. Uh, it's understandable because that's where the money is in treatment. It's not in prevention. So what we have to do is develop a system that rewards prevention more so than it rewards treatment, and that that can be done. Well, I certainly like a system that keeps me healthy, as a so that I don't have to deal with 
getting sick in the first place. So that, there's certain logic to that. One of the things I like about your book is you've got this core principle, and then you address each of the major different areas of, of health care, knowing that they're all interconnected and the idea that you're going to have to build a system and not apply Band-Aids to any one area. And I also like the way that you've compiled information on how many other countries do each of these different sections of, of the healthcare system to help guide us into what we should do. Well, thank you. <laughs> I like those things about it, too. Yeah. Well, so, so we're on the same page. So let's talk then about some of these specific issues. I just want to start with the core issue, that healthcare is a fundamental right. I sort of feel like we would also agree that having food on the table is a fundamental right, having housing is a fundamental right. But in the United States, we don't feel like everybody has to have the same food. We don't feel like everybody has to have the same housing. We feel like certainly you should have a certain minimum. But also we don't have the kind of, of health care, uh, kind of cost issues that we have for eating or housing that we do for health care. What's different about those things? Well, um, I don't think they are that different. Another thing that we should have that should be a universal right is education. There are certain very basic things that people need to develop their potential, and it's, you know, we immediately hear people screaming socialism, uh, and it is socialism. But I don't think most people understand what socialism is. There is not a country in the world today that isn't socialistic. And that's a, that's a flat statement. Uh, socialism is in the middle of the spectrum between uh, laissez-faire or, or capitalism and communism. In laissez-faire, there are no regulations, there are no rules. People earn what they can. It's sort of law of the jungle, every man for, or woman for him or herself. And then they do with as they please with what they, they earn. In communism, at the other end of the spectrum... Uh, everybody works as hard as they can, and then everything that's earned is dumped into a common pot, and then it's distributed according to need. Neither of those work very well. Communism doesn't work, of course, because it kills incentive. And laissez-faire doesn't work because the most ruthless, rather than the most talented, gain control of the system and use it to their advantage while everybody else suffers. We had uh, laissez-faire in this country once during the... Uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and within a period of 50 years, about 50 guys, or 20 guys, I'm sorry, and one woman, actually, called the robber barons, gained total control of our economy. And we had 30% unemployment. We had a recession every 10 years or so. It was horrible for the average working person. So we became socialistic. Socialistic is in the middle between communism and laissez-faire. Socialism is where the government takes a portion of what everybody earns and uses that to provide services for the public. Things like education, free education, things in advanced countries like uh, free health care, protection, military protection, police, things that people need in order to be able to develop their potential. I, so just the have, the, I have a sense that the grocery store works real well, that, you know, there are different grocery stores in my town. There's They, they have overlapping equipment, but their prices are all very reasonable. Maybe not everybody gets to eat lobster, but, but everybody can afford, hopefully almost everybody can afford food, except perhaps at the margin where we, we help people pay for it. But the, the cost of 
of groceries, uh, we just don't have the same problem that we have with the cost of health care. And I'm wondering, both are, are fundamental rights. Uh, we wouldn't say eating is a privilege. Where, where, where's the difference, do you see, between those two issues? Why is health care so expensive and, and groceries so very reasonable? Uh, health care is very expensive because there, it's, hmm, uh, it's very expensive because it's not really free market. Certain things work better, of course, with free market, and that's why socialism works is because of things like grocery stores and convenience stores are, are laissez-faire. They're, they are capitalistic, and that's great. It keeps the prices down. Healthcare, because it's necessary, the things that are necessary, uh, it's, it, what happens and has happened in healthcare is that a, a small percentage of the population or the small percentage of the people involved in healthcare have gained control of it. There aren't that many insurance companies, and there isn't that much competition between insurance companies. If there was real competition, I guarantee that the price of insurance would not be as high as, as it is today. If we had a joint system which combined, and this is what they have in most European countries, they have universal health care, which is free, but they also have a private sector. And if people want to get their services from the private sector, then they buy insurance, which is uh, capitalism, you know, free market insurance. The insurance companies have to compete with each other, but the insurance companies also in European countries have to compete with the free system so that the insurance companies get out of control. If, you know, they start taking 30% out of every health care dollar, then people go to the universal system and there's more of a balance, balanced perspective. So insurance in European countries is much, much cheaper for health care private insurance than it is in the United States because they have to compete with the universal health care system. Um, and I think that system seems to work. So we have competition uh, between the insurance companies, but we also have competition between the insurance companies and the UHS. And there are plenty of people in Europe who have private insurance. What they generally do in these countries is they use the universal system for preventative health care, that's its major strength in European countries, to keep people well, and they use it for the small things like cuts and bruises and colds and whatever. But when they need bypass surgery or something like that, they go to the private system and they get fine service there as well. Does that make sense? Yes, and it sounds like for the really tough problems, you really tend to like the idea of using profit motives and incentives to get things in alignment, to get the goals um, achieved. And this approach to health care is that, you know, if you can keep your, if you work in one of the clinics, for example, or in one of the hospitals, but mainly in one of the clinics because they're community clinics in this system, if you keep your people healthier, uh, the people that you, you serve healthy, then you get rewarded for doing that more so than if they're sick all the time. So we reverse the incentive that currently exists in the United States. Now, it seems to me that there's a fine line that is very difficult to walk, and that is that if you pay people to give care, you pay people more money to have, when they provide more care, well, you get more care, maybe more than you want. If you pay people not to have care, then you're going to get less care than you want. 
how do you how do you get people to how do you set up a system that pays people for just the right amount of care because as i read your book and i'm thinking well it sounds like you're trying to pay people to do the right thing in the end of the day you give them money from their health account if they stay well but how do they separate that from simply not not getting more care oh good point and that is an interesting problem now if we had this allowance system in place that we've introduced in the book okay i have to stop you because i read the book and i understand what the allowance system is but set it up for our listeners tell them enough about how you're organizing this um the health savings account or whatever you want to call it um so they understand what we're talking about sure uh, the way we set it up in order to encourage prevention and encourage people to stay well and encourage people not to overuse the system, which is a major problem with most universal health care systems, they're overused, and also to incentivize the people who are providing the treatment, is that everybody gets an allowance from the government, a certain amount of money, a yearly amount of money, and that is for health care. When they need treatment, when they seek treatment, then they uh, have to pay out of that allowance. Um, let's see. Oh, in terms of the, the treatment that they get, preventative treatment is free. It doesn't cost anything from their allowance. Only when they have to get treated for a cold or a broken arm or something like that does money get taken out of their allowance. At the end of the year, they get part of what's left over in their account. If they haven't used it all, if they've used it all, fine. Then, and if they've used more than that, then there's a catastrophic, catastrophic fund which covers their additional expenses at no cost themselves. If they don't use it all, then they get a portion of what's left over. The government also gets a portion of what's left over, and the people who have been treating them in their regional or local clinic get a portion of what's left over. So that incentivizes them uh, not to overuse their account and to try to stay healthy. It incentivizes the people in the clinic to keep the people they're treating healthy. And, of course, it gives the government some money back so that it's not as expensive. Now, the big question, of course, is, well, gee, if I had an account and I uh, was rewarded for not using the money in the account, then I wouldn't go to the hospital if I was sick, you know. Try to set it myself, or if I had a bad cold, I wouldn't do it. But part of the staff in these regional clinics, and they keep very accurate records on the, the people that they serve, part of the staff is a social worker. And the social workers are responsible for making sure, keeping watch over the people they're in charge of, and making sure that you know, something's going on in their homes, well, then that they do seek treatment. Also, there are people that go out and visit these people, you know, if they can't go to the clinic, then somebody goes out and visits them and provides a service. And this is standard practice in European countries. I'm sorry, in Western European countries at least. And I think in Eastern European countries, though, though they're just getting it set up. Is that clear enough? That's very clear. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net, and I'm the host, Steve Feldman. We're talking today with Bill Roth. Bill is the author of a book on a universal health system. Uh, the book is entitled Comprehensive Healthcare for the United States, an Idealized Model. It's available on Amazon.com. So, Bill, 
let me make sure I understand what you're saying because this is probably one of the central aspects of this system. If somebody has high blood pressure and they're not taking their high blood pressure medicines because they want to save money and get a little bigger cut at the end of the day, then you've built in a, a protection against this by having social workers go out to the homes and really encouraging them to go ahead and get that blood pressure medicine. Yes. All right. Uh, I think one of the things that people don't like about our current system, that they something they feel um, counts for a lot of the high cost of care, is the, I, I shouldn't say useless, but the end-of-life care that really isn't accomplishing a whole lot. It's very, very expensive to hospitalize people for months on end with little hope that they're going to recover. People worry, I think, about some of the proposals that there's going to be death panels that are going to – so the government's going to decide that it's time to pull the plug. It sounds like in your system with catastrophic coverage um, uh, covering the cost of, of those high-dollar items that there's not going to be any incentive on the family to, to pull the plug or to stop such um, – again, I don't know if it's useless or not, but – marginally useful end-of-life care. Is there something in your system that will help lower the cost of, of that? That's, that's a really good question. Of course, that's a major issue today with what's going on in the, on the political front. I think that ho- hopefully part of the social worker's role and part of the, you know, these people will be going to a community clinic and they will be served by the clinic, by the people in the clinic, and the people will get to know them very, very well. And I think uh, they will receive advisement. I have been in this situation myself, as most of the audience probably has, with an, an elderly people, a mother-in-law, and my own mother, who were extremely ill and who were kept alive. And both of them have said that they really and truly wanted to move on, you know, and that it was time for them to go, and they were the ones that made the decision. I think that part of the thing, one of the things that we have to do is let people decide for themselves uh, when it's time for them to move on. It's one of the major decisions in all of our lives, and we all say, and I've heard it time and time again, well, when I'm that old, you know, when I'm infirmed and there's no quality left in my life, I'm going to move on. I'm not going to hang around. Uh, I think, hopefully, that will become more realistic when the profit motive, and I think the profit motive has a lot to do with these people being kept alive when they don't have any any real life left in them. Uh, I think that will be gone uh, with this system because there won't be profit to keeping these people alive, and they'll be allowed to die. Does that make sense? Yes. I, 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 don't, I, I don't share your opinion that, that we doctors – are are keeping people alive needlessly because we're making more money. Okay. I just I just that is just so far from my experience uh, uh, taking care of folks. On the other hand, uh, I'm a dermatologist. When I was involved uh, in, in managing inpatients as an intern, uh, you know, I wasn't making any money from from, from okay. it. I was on a straight salary. But I just can't imagine that that that, that the doctors are um, are thinking that way. But Oh, uh, excuse me. I, I've got to clarify something because I'm sorry I, I didn't clarify it. I'm not talking about the doctors. The doctors are victims of the current system. They're the ones that they suffered as much as just about anybody the way the system's set up. It's not the doctors. It's the 
places that take care of these people, the retirement homes and the places like that, they have huge staffs. And there are a lot of people who are dependent on keeping these people alive. In the current recession, uh, a lot of these people are, a lot of these organizations are losing patients because, because families are taking them out and taking them home. And guess what the families are allowing them to do? They're allowing them to die, uh, which is what the people want. Uh, no, it's not the doctors. It's the organizations that tend to these people. Fair enough. Now, yeah, yeah, doctors are are really getting the shaft in this system. Let's talk about the doctors um, and, and their incentives for a moment. Sure. When I've seen um, uh, insurance companies, managed care organizations that are are paid to take care of a population of, of people, um, if they're they're paid some capitated amount, their goal would be to take care of the healthiest patients. So the smart thing to do is to have an open enrollment period on, the say, the third floor of a building that has no elevator. And that way, the only people you will sign up are people who can walk up three flights of stairs. And you'll have a really healthy population, and you'll make a lot of money. Now, in your system, one of the, the, um, the, the ways you incentivize doctors um, to take better care of patients to, to prevent problems is you incentivize them for keeping patients healthy. But that always runs the risk that, 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 that the, the person you're paying, in this case doctors, are, are going to try to avoid take, you know, signing up sick people. Uh, they're uh, going to want to take the healthy people so that right up front they know they're going to, to do better. How do, you, how do you avoid that kind of uh, way of working around the uh, incentive structure? Yeah, I believe that problem was addressed in the book because we realized that would be a problem. Uh, doctors don't get a choice as to who their patients are. Uh, everybody in the community that is being served, you know, receives service from the clinic, and people can sign up to any clinic they want to. Usually there's a, a, a local one, and, uh, you know, most of them will obviously sign up with a local clinic. But once they're signed up, they're assigned to a doctor. Do you think there's any chance that, that good doctors will be penalized? I mean, if a doctor say, has a, a reputation that, boy, he is a really good person to see for taking care of, you know, the sickest patients, he, you know, then, then he's going to end up with more of these sickest patients and, and be financially penalized. I think uh, because of the way the system's going to be set up, the education system for doctors and, and people like that, we're going to have not only doctors, but we're going to have physician's assistants, nurse practitioners, and as you know, <laughs> Uh, these people treat patients, and they can provide almost all the treatments available for patients. So I think that also, I you know, in my experience, and I have doctors in my family, and I you know, I've been involved with the medical community for at least twenty or thirty years. Most of the doctors that I met are compassionate people. You know, they're not just money grubbers. That they is so true. really and truly want to provide a service. And so, therefore, I don't think there will be much of a problem with them being assigned people who are sick. Uh, and I don't think there will be doctors. And I don't think if there are doctors, uh, because these, these community centers, which are going to be the focus of the treatment, are run by boards, and the boards are not all physicians. The boards are local people. And I think the word will get out. And if a doctor isn't performing, you know, if a doctor is not doing a good job and is not compassionate, I don't think that doctor will last very long in the community center. 
Yeah. So I, I, when, when I hear people talk about bad doctors, I always like to point out that there's a real tendency to see the negative side of, uh, of anything because that's what makes news. So if a doctor <laughs> right. cuts off the wrong leg, you read about it in the newspaper. If the doctor gave you a really fabulous patient care experience, you're not going to read about it in the newspaper because that's what happens all the time. And so I it's agree. not news. One of the things I did was set up a doctor rating website, doctorscore.com, so that the public could see what the average patient satisfaction score of doctors is. And I don't know if this made it into your book, but you know, having that kind of Internet resource that makes doctors uh, more transparent to people, I think it's going to help doctors tremendously. When, when we looked at the doctors who had 20 or more ratings um, at this doctorscore.com website, the uh, average patient satisfaction score was over 9 out of 10. In fact, you know, I'm a dermatologist. I was a 9.1 out of 10. And when my mom looks at that, she thinks I'm doing a really good job. But it puts me solidly in the bottom half of physicians. Hmm. Well, you know, I think that's a great idea. Um, one of the, um, the, the central ways that I like to assess whether a new system is going to work is how it addresses what I see as the fundamental cost problem in, that, that I face in practice. I, I see patients with psoriasis, this condition where there's red scaly spots on the skin. And for patients who have really severe disease, we've got lots of new fancy treatments. For patients who have just a few spots, we, we give them creams, um, cortisone-type medicines that will, will clear up the inflammation. Now, I can offer them choices. I can t tell them, look, for $4, you can get an inexpensive generic, it's a little bit messy ointment from um, Target or uh, Walmart pharmacy for 4 bucks. Uh, or if you don't like the messiness of it, you can go with a brand name fancy foam or spray-on product that might cost closer to $200. Or if you really want to go the high-tech route, there's a, a, a combination drug that may be marginally better. It's a combination of a vitamin D with a steroid. It costs $800 a tube. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the insured patient, the well-insured patient says, well, doc, I want the best. Here's what I want you to do. Write me a prescription for the, for the $200 medicine and the $800 medicine, and I'll try them both, and I'll see which one works best for me. Uh, clearly, the incentive structure that we currently have, you know, with really good insurance is, is going to drive costs through the ceiling. What specifically in the universal healthcare system that you've designed would be different about this scenario? Uh, well, one of the major differences would be that when you walk into a drugstore, there not, are not lines and lines and shelves and shelves of pills to take your choice from or lotions or whatever you're buying there only be three or four uh, if you go to Europe and spend time in their drugstores they don't have the huge the huge number of product brands that we have they have four or five product brands and the other thing is that when you walk in the pharmacists in Europe and they would be trained in our system are you know very very knowledgeable as to what uh, is available and what would be best for their patients. And so the pharmacist in the universal system would be part of the community center concept. And the pharmacist would be tied in with those people and know what's going on with the patient and be able to recommend the best treatment for that thing, that person. So with the, the, other, the other thing is that, that uh, medications would be free as they are in Europe or very, very inexpensive. 
And so, therefore, you know, people don't have to worry about paying $800 for a good cream. They will receive a good cream for free. So they're going to receive the $800 cream for free. Well, that's sort of what this well, really well-insured... Well, maybe not $800 cream, but a cream that, you know, treats what they want needed to be treated. So if the choice is a $4 medicine that does a pretty good job or an $800 tube of medicine that does a little bit better job, do you pay for the little bit better job? Or do you say, no, 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 we're just going to give you the $4 cream? Uh, you give you you give the people, you know, because they're trying to make the, um, the uh, system cost-effective, you give the people the $4 cream, but maybe a little bit better than the $4 cream, not $800, but maybe $6. Fair enough. You know, one of the things reading your book that, that I, I thought you might say is, well, look, since we are, have a universal system and since the government is the one payer, uh, the negotiation process with the pharmaceutical company is going to make that $800 medicine a whole lot cheaper or the government's just simply not going to buy it. Yes. Well, I, I agree. Okay. That would also happen because, you know, they won't – the fringe things, the things that have lots of feathers and uh, sparkles on them are, are not going to be there. Now, um, one of the clear points in your system that I think is true about universal health care systems is the idea of reliance on the primary care doctor versus the specialist, that we have a specialist-heavy system here now, and we, we ought to move to a primary care-centric um, uh, system. One of the um, arguments that I've heard against that is that specialization is actually good. So if you have a skin problem, man, a dermatologist is going to know exactly what it is, give you the right treatment right from the get-go, and you won't have to mess around with the family doctor not being sure or a wasted visit to the family doctor before they send you to the dermatologist. Uh, Similarly, the, the, the family doctor Maybe they're just as good as an endocrinologist at managing diabetes, but you would think that by specializing in things, you actually become better at making the the right diagnosis and giving the most effective treatment right from the get-go. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, the way the system is set up is that, you know, everybody has a family doctor, and they can pick their own family doctor, and they can choose whenever they want to. If they want a family doctor in another community center uh, rather than the one in the closest community center, that's fine. The family doctor is the entry point for the system. They have to go through the family doctor, but then we have regional clinics uh, in our system, whereas you can be referred to a regional clinic after you go to your community center. So if you go to your community center and your family doctor or your family doctor or actually the team that's treating you because you're not treated by one person, you're treated by a team which I believe includes a family doctor and a, a nurse practitioner, I believe, uh, and a social worker, of course. Uh, if the team says, hey, you know, this person needs a specialist, then you go to the specialist. So you're not being barred from going to the specialist, but you have to, you know, go through your team before you get to the specialist. Well, Bill, we're at about the end of our program here. At this point, I want to give you the opportunity to um – to give our listeners some practical advice on things they should do to improve our healthcare system, or if you prefer, things they should do right now within our current system to get better healthcare. I think that the most important thing at this point, from what I've been 
seeing it that you know what's going on in Washington with the health care bill is that they should elect people to Congress who are going to support uh, a more appropriate system for the United States. Obviously, a lot of money has been spent on politicians by, unfortunately, by the insurance companies. I think they're one of the largest donors to campaigns and by the the, uh, pharmaceutical companies and by people who don't want change. And unfortunately, a lot of them have um, done what they were asked to do in terms of blocking probably the core part of health care change in the United States, which is the development and the putting into place of a universal system. Not just a universal system, but a universal system that sits side by side with the private system. I think that's the first thing we have to do to improve our health care in this country. Um, of course, people have to focus more on prevention, but that's an attitude. That's a cultural attitude. Uh, that attitude is, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Europe, and that attitude does exist in Europe. I mean, people really do focus on staying well. In the United States, we wait till the last minute until, you know, we're really sick, and then we go to the doctors, and we we have to be treated. So we have to change our attitude about what's important. But, you know, in order for us to change our attitude, the doctors, not that doctors, I'm sorry, the medical community has to change its attitude and get away from the profit motive. And the people that I've talked to and I've worked with, and I've worked with literally hundreds of, of health care providers in order to put this book together, most of those people feel the same way. Most of the physicians, especially that I've talked to, really are for uh, some sort of universal system combined with the private system. Uh, they wouldn't have helped me with the book if they weren't. Uh, so that has to change. Uh, the education system has to change. Physicians come out of out of school. Physicians and a lot of healthcare providers come out of school deeply in debt. That's absurd, you know, to punish people for trying to to wanting for wanting to provide a service to the public, for wanting to help to keep the public healthy is absurd. In other countries, it's based strictly on a competitive exam. The people who do the best in the exam get into school, and then their education is largely paid for. So they don't come out of school $100,000, $200,000 in debt. They come out of school just about debt-free and can begin practicing. Uh, so that has to change. As we said, this is a system, and you can't just change one part of it. You have to change the whole thing. Another thing is malpractice. It's absurd. Uh, you know, the malpractice suits that are brought against physicians and against people in the healthcare community. In other countries, you know, the people who make the decisions are not courts. They're boards of people who are experts. And it's not just physicians. It's a cross-section of the population. And they decide what the rewards should be. And the rewards are much, much lower. And there are much fewer cases brought because there are much, many you know, lawyers aren't generally involved representing the people. And so that takes another chunk of the profit motive out of it. So, you know, we have to decide what's important. You know, keeping our population healthy or making money off of sickness. And I think that's the major decision that has to be made. Makes sense? Makes perfect sense. Bill, thank you so much. William Roth, Jr. is the author of Comprehensive Healthcare for the United States, An Idealized Model. His book is available on Amazon.com. It's an amazing work. Uh, there were some 80 healthcare professionals from 12 different countries who contributed to his project. Bill, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Okay. That was William Roth, Jr., 
author of the book Comprehensive Healthcare for the United States, an Idealized Model. What Bill has done is, is really carefully thought out. He starts out from first principles, from deciding that, look, we consider healthcare a right and not a privilege. And then he and his colleagues built from there. Now, before we go and build a, a new system, let's, let's, let's count the, the system we have. We have a system that in many ways is very good. If, if I needed a major operation, I'm not sure I'd go anywhere else in the world to have it because I got great insurance. So if you have great insurance, if you have access, you, know, you can get some terrific care here in the United States. But it's very costly. And people who don't have uh, insurance, uh, because it's so costly, may not have very good access. So we need to develop a new system. Um, simply insuring the uninsured is just going to add to the high costs we face. To have universal health care, uh, we can insure everybody, and that may give the government um, buying power, the power to negotiate, should we choose to use it. It creates a competitor for other insurance systems. You know, th those are some positives. At, on the other side, um, some of the, the negatives, some of the things that, that people might, want, might not want to give up, especially if they're well insured, is the idea that this new universal system is not going to pay for everything, even in Bill's model. As good as it is, he's saying, well, those really super high-dollar medicines that only offer a little bit of additional value, we're not going to have those. And all the different options, well, we're going to cut those down. Um, that That's good, and it's bad. It's going to make our system more uniform, and I guess if you consider basic health care a right, that's super. If you consider the best possible health care a privilege, well, that would probably be harder to get. I think Bill's right on when he says, you know, we've got to put the financial incentives where we want them. Um, right now, patients have no little to no financial incentive to conserve if their insurance company is paying for things. So they may buy that $800 tube of medicine uh, instead of taking the $4 tube that might have done just as good a job. On the other hand, there's some things in Bill's system that suggest that, well, we'll create a system where people actually save money when they conserve on their expenses. And that's fine, except to the extent that it really is paying for them not to be cared for, in which case the incentive structure isn't really ideal. Um, Bill builds in social workers I just don't know about social workers coming into our homes to enforce the medical decisions that somebody else wants to make for us. It's a, it's a really interesting issue. Personally, I wonder if it wouldn't be better to give people real responsibility as much as possible, to as much as possible put, put the cost onus on patients, give them the money in their health savings accounts if we have to. Maybe that could be the universal plan is we just give the uninsured uh, health savings account, and we make them responsible for making responsible decisions. And if they choose not to get the care that the rest of us think they need, well, I guess that would be their choice. Well, as you know, patient empowerment is a big issue for me. The doctorscore.com website is one way we uh, empower patients to get information on doctors and to share information. So I want to encourage you to visit there. 
And I hope you'll join us next time on Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Steve Fellman. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us today for Getting Better Healthcare. For more information about Dr. Feldman and about healthcare, please visit drscore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E dot com. And we'll see you back here next week. 